Okay, if you're wondering if you're visiting or if you're, well, even if you're not visiting, remember we have our new members class. It's not like half our church decided not to show up, but we just do have quite a few newer folks and they are down the hall uh, with Pastor Ben. So let's pray and uh, let's go ahead and get into it. God, we're thankful um, uh, for this morning, for the opportunity to uh, come and study your word, continue to think about baptism and covenant and how you've worked through and with your people. We pray that this time would be profitable and not merely some kind of academic exercise, but that said that we could understand um, the contours of redemptive history a little bit better, understand what you say about these things with a bit more clarity. We ask that you would be with us during this time toward that end in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, um, so we left off last time Responding to a set of texts, uh, well, responding, we only looked at one of them, but responding to a text that purports to demonstrate that the new covenant is a covenant that includes covenant breakers. Remember, the Baptist understanding of Jeremiah 31 is that what's new about it is that there aren't covenant breakers like in the old covenant. You had some people faithful, some people not faithful. In the new covenant, that's not the case. Everyone knows God. Everyone has the law written on their hearts, etc. Um and so, uh, but, but before we could we continue on that line, I had a question afterwards that I thought was really good uh, about Richard Pratt's view that the new covenant, remember his way of trying to wiggle out is saying the new covenant comes already, not yet. And so the not yet part of the new covenant is the new heavens and new earth. So the new covenant is a pure covenant, but uh, it isn't right now. It only will be later. And so Jeremiah 31 is really a prophecy about the, the end of all things, the consummation. It's a restoration prophecy. And I said, it's awkward for Pratt to say that we have the law only partially written on our heart, whatever that means, and yet the full forgiveness of sins. And someone was asking me, uh, well, if I, is it, you know, I'm not fully sanctified yet. Doesn't that mean the law is only partially written on my heart? Now, and so that gives me an opportunity to clarify very briefly here that just because the Someone has the law written on their heart doesn't mean that their sinful nature has uh, disappeared. Uh, it means that God's personal revelation has been internalized and that I can love God from my heart. I'm not just a rule following. I have a heart of stone that has been taken out and a heart of flesh that has been put in. And this is not a new thing, I would say. This is not a totally new thing to have the law inside one's heart. In fact, you see, uh, there have always been faithful Israelites. There have always been Israelites who love the Lord uh, with their heart. And you even see the language of the word in the, uh, on their heart. Um, Psalm 48, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart. I might not sin against you, Psalm 37, 30 and 31. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. So the phenomenon of the law being internalized isn't itself new. What's new is that it is a promise of the covenant. The old covenant did not promise as a... a, a stipulation of the covenant itself that this was an active thing that God was going to do. In the new covenant, God is going to do it such that everyone in the covenant has the law written on their heart. Um, and, and again, that doesn't mean that 
you do not have a sinful nature, but it means that you have a chance of beating and having victory over sin because you have a transformed heart. I talked with a brother a couple of weeks ago and said, I felt like I, he said, I feel like I struggle with sin more now that I'm a believer. And I said, let me just, let me help you out here. Before you were a believer, you, you, you weren't struggling with sin. You see that? So I got the law written on my heart. Now I've got Galatians 5, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the spirit are set against one another. So you don't do what they want. At James 4, 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you is it not the desires of your heart that battle within you? So now I've got a renewed heart, but I still have this Adamic residue, this sin nature that I am fighting against. So uh, what in the old covenant was a reality for some in the new covenant is a reality for all, which is why Paul can describe the church at Corinth as Second uh, uh, Corinthians two three, a letter from Christ delivered by us, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the Living God, not written on tablets of stone, but tablets of the human heart. So this is something that has happened. I am being so it's a different category than I am progressively being sanctified. So. Because we have the law written on our hearts, we can have, that is to say, we have the revelation of God, an intimate knowledge of God. We have a new heart, not a heart of stone, a heart of flesh to love God, to know God. Um, but that does not mean that we are going to be sinless because of the presence of sin. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, having the law written on my heart doesn't mean that sin somehow has been eradicated. Those aren't, those aren't, so long as there is, I have a flesh, I will still, I will still sin. But nevertheless... I don't think it makes a lot of sense to say that the law is partially written uh, on, on, on my heart. Even with the biblical precedent there, no one in the book of Psalms said uh, your law is partially in my heart or something like that. I mean, there, there's this understanding that it's an all or nothing kind of a thing as we become sanctified. Okay, well, let's continue on to the, this is probably the most important one. Uh, we, looked at, we looked at Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Uh, we're going to move past that one. There are five so-called warning passages in the book of Hebrews that are always turned to over and over and over as the examples of the fact that the new covenant is a covenant that someone can truly be in and fall away from. The most important by far is Hebrews 10, 29 and 30. So if you have your copy of the scripture, turn with me to Hebrews 10, 29 and 30, and we're going to look at this together. Okay. Okay. And by the way, the reason this is taken so seriously is because I told you that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters have a tendency to Judaize the New Testament and bring in these frameworks from the old into the new. In all of the other warning passages in Hebrews and outside of Hebrews, you just kind of have to assume that that theological architecture is in place to even make sense of that. Okay. I read one, one uh, theologian this week who was talking about how uh, uh, Judas was in the new covenant but fell out. It's like, what? Judas was in the new, like, before? But Jesus hadn't even died and rose from the dead. What? Do you, what is it? So anything that's even a, so for some of them, our Presbyterian friends, that's the only category they have. If you're associated with the church, associated with Jesus, you've, if it says anything about someone believed, and then they then that means that they were in the new covenant and then fell out. They have to import, again, that theological architecture. However, in Hebrews 10, 29, and 30, it actually mentions the covenant. 
instead of having to like fish for it or you know assume it, it's actually right there. So let's look at it together, and here's why. This is the, by far the one that uh, should be taken the most seriously. He says this, <clears throat> For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That is to say, if I, if I have heard the truth of the gospel, I reject that, keep on sinning, there's not like a second gospel for me. You know, there's not like a gospel for the people who reject the gospel. You know, that's, that's not how it works. There is only a, a, a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone, verse 28, who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, here's 29 and 30. Listen to this. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the covenant itself is mentioned here. Uh, 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 that the, the, how much worse, if, if under the law of Moses, someone who sets that aside and disregards it dies without mercy on two or three witnesses, how much worse is it going to be for the person who profanes the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Okay? So, and of course, when I, when I say sanctified here, you do have to do a little bit of import. They, they understand sanctified here, not to mean a Christian who's holy, because remember, they're reformed. They mean this is covenantally set, set apart as sanctified. So sanctified as in set apart within God's people, but not saved. We're going to question that in just one second. There are two, uh, there may be more, but there are two decent, uh, uh, well, one is decent, and I think one is, is very good, uh, Reformed Baptists, Baptists in general, interpretations of this passage, Okay. At that, that opposes the idea that this is a, someone pictured in the new covenant who falls out. The first one is, I have it up on the screen, I know it's a lot of text, but again, some people like to read. The he of verse 29 refers to Christ, not the profaning individual. So look back at verse 29, and then we'll read the rest of that. Look at back at verses, this is uh, famously uh, John, uh, John Owen's view of this, of this verse. So in verse 29... How much, uh, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of covenant by which the Son of God, he, was sanctified? Okay, so he says the reference to the close, he says the antecedent of that he isn't the person who's doing any trampling. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus was sanctified. Jesus was consecrated as high priest of the new covenant. Okay, this isn't talking about a person who is in the covenant. It's talking about who is someone who is rejecting the high priest of the covenant. Why would you think that? It's equally grammatically viable that he could refer to the Son of God just fine in the Greek. Um, the, the Son of God is actually the closest antecedent in the sentence. Jesus himself said that he would be sanctified, John 17, 19, so that we could be sanctified. Okay, so it's not just pulling something out of thin air. Hebrews 9.12 explicitly mentions Jesus entering into the heavenly tent as high priest on the basis of his own blood. And this interpretation fits with an Old Testament understanding of high priests being consecrated, sanctified for their position 
by the spilling of blood. Okay? So the view is, this is telling us that Christ, by the spilling of his blood, is the high priest of this covenant, and a person who profanes the covenant and rejects Christ goes to hell. Okay? That's, that, is a, that is the cut-down version of what that is. Um, I think that's, there again, multiple very, very good, smart, faithful folks take that interpretation of this passage. Um, I tend to think that, and I think that's fine. I mean, that's kind of, that would be like maybe my fallback interpretation, okay? I think it's there. I think, you, I think you can see that. I think that in the larger context, it actually makes sense to be talking about the individual there. Okay, I do. Um, and if you feel like the he there referring to the Son of God kind of felt like a, I don't know, like a trick or something, or like a, uh, you know, I'm not sure I would have got that first pass. Uh, there is another option here. And here's the second option. Is that the he, in verse 29, refers to the individual in question. Or if the he, excuse me, if the he refers to the individual in question, we should remember that the verb to sanctify is consistently used in the book of Hebrews to describe a believer who has been set apart forever and forgiven in light of Christ's sacrifice. Okay? Consider two such uses. I'm going to show you two such uses. Notice it's critical for the view that the covenant is mixed for our Reformed Presbyterian friends that this person is not a believer. Um, that this person is not uh, uh, has not been bought, bought with the blood of Jesus or anything like that, that they are just covenantally sanctified. They have to see a non-salvific kind, uh, non kind of sanctification here. Okay? Because they don't believe a believer can, can fall away. I hope that makes sense. But here's the problem. The word sanctify in Hebrews doesn't mean that. In fact, in, the, in this very chapter, twice it doesn't mean that. Surely, if we're going to seek to understand the word sanctified here, we need to understand it the way it's used the other two times in the same chapter. Where are those? Well, one of them is in Hebrews 10.10. 10. If you back up. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He has gone and he has done something as a high priest once for all contrasting that with every priest standing at their daily service offering uh, sacrifices repeatedly but when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God which leads us to verse 14 for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified Okay? You could point to other examples in the book of Hebrews, but in Hebrews, sanctified is a once-for-all kind of a thing that has to do with salvation. Okay? It does not have to do with a covenantal setting apart, a non-salvific understanding of sanctification, some kind of covenantal inclusion. It has to do with something who has been perfected by the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, so given their commitment to eternal security... A paedo-baptist must confess on pain of exegetical inconsistency, using a word differently than it's used in the book and twice in the passage that we're considering, um, that, that such a person is depicted as a believer 
as someone who is saved, implying that the person being considered here is someone who truly appeared to be a Christian and part of the covenant, perhaps even believed in some sense, but was nevertheless unregenerate. Simply to understand this kind of sanctification as non-salvific sanctification is just hermeneutically irresponsible, I would say, just because of what's how uh, sanctified is used here. And that leads us to need to briefly discuss a very important concept in the New Testament, and this is the phenomenological Christ follower. Phenomenological at 99 cent theological philosophical word, meaning how something appears, how something seems, how something seems. This is a very important category in the New Testament. I've listed some examples there. We see this phenomenon, non-saving belief and acting as though one truly professed Christ and even being called perhaps a Christ follower, and yet they aren't actually. They are depicted as such, but they aren't. For example, in John 2, 23, people believed in Jesus. And yet, you look at the next verse, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew it was in the heart of man. So wait a second. Do they believe in Jesus or do they not believe in Jesus? It says they believed in Jesus. They believed in him. They believed in some sense, but it wasn't a saving kind of sense. Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. In Acts chapter 8, we have Simon Simon believed and verse, and verse 13 was baptized. Remember, Simon the sorcerer, he believed and was baptized. And then when he saw the, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit, that the apostles were able to do this, he offers them money to be able to, oh, if I could do this magic trick, I'd really be a big hit in the greater Jerusalem area myself. And, um, and by the end of the passage, 18 through 24, you find out he's still in his sin. It makes it very, very clear. That although he believed and was baptized, Simon the sorcerer did not have a renewed heart. But he is described as though he did. Jesus has his own words about those who are in the vine, but who are not connected in a life-giving way to the vine. Therefore, they are fruitless and they are broken off. Okay, So there's a way to be, as Piper says, in the vine, but not in the vine. Okay, that's how he says it. There's a way to have physical connection, but not a vibrant, life-giving connection. I'm in the vine, but I'm not in, in the vine. Or John 6, 63 through 66, where Jesus had disciples that turned back and no longer followed him. It's what it says. Jesus has disciples, but after the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of the Spirit and life, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Wait, wait, so you can be a disciple of Jesus and, and abandon Jesus? Again, described phenomenologically, as someone who is in. We also have just the example of Judas, okay? 
so this is a very important category. It's not just making this up to try to get out of a theological problem here. It's looking at how the word, the, the book itself and the passage uses the word sanctified and then, uh, in, in, in then utilizing this concept that we see throughout the New Testament. Also, let me just say, it's particularly important to realize that the author of Hebrews was writing to a mixed audience, writing to Jewish Christians who were flirting with going back into Judaism and, he, and falling back into some of the ceremonial stuff. And he seems to be convinced that they're Christians, but it's, you, when you read the book of Hebrews, you, you, you get the sense that he's not so sure all of them are Christians. He's writing to a mixed audience, very much like how I might stand up and preach before people. Every single time I stand up and preach, I'm preaching to unbelievers who may identify as believers. And I don't have a problem telling a Christian who I think is a Christian, who identifies as a Christian, if you do not repent of your sin, you will go to hell. I don't have a problem saying that. I don't have a problem saying that whatsoever. I'm fine with warning such people. Um, and so that is how I, pref because I think that, I, I think it honors the text a little bit better and it fits the context that the he refers to this person who's profaning. They're depicted as someone just like Simon who believed, someone who was sanctified, someone is this. They were, they appeared to be in, uh, they, are, they are depicted as someone who was in and fell out. They, that, that is how the depiction is. Theological backstory, 1 John 2.19, for example, they went out from us for they were not truly of us. But, but that is how it is depicted, and we're going to talk about how to handle the warning passages in our next, uh, in our next Sunday School series, okay? Um, as a side note, let me just say this. This is very, very interesting, and I want to mention it quickly and, and move along. Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters um, believe in definite atonement, definite atonement. That's the idea that Christ died for the church. He atoned for the church. But no, but, but that's it. He atoned for the elect. It wasn't some kind of potential atonement that was made for everyone. It was a definite, effective atonement that was made for his sheep. Um, that's what the, the so and so they. But if you combine that theology with this, with their interpretation of this right here, you get this very bizarre little situation where Christ is the high priest of a covenant that have people in it for whom he didn't die. People are in the mixed covenant. You have an unbeliever in this covenant who has Christ as their high priest because he's the high priest of the covenant. And yet he didn't even die for them. So what does he mediate to them? What does he mediate to them? Is there any theology of Christ the high priest mediating wrath down onto people in the covenant? No, it's the exact opposite, that Christ is the high priest mediates wrath away from people in the covenant, which he can't do if he didn't die for them. And that's what Presbyterians believe. There are people in the covenant that Jesus is the high priest for that he didn't die because they hold to definite atonement. I'm going to move on from that. If that sounded like gobbledygook in Chinese, just for, just forget that point. But it, is, it, it leads to a very uh, interesting uh, tension, okay? There are five so-called warning passages here. I wanted to deal with this one. It's by far the most serious because it mentions the covenant. Um, and I want to go on, and I go want to uh, go ahead and and uh, continue to move on here to the covenant children proof texts. Um, intractably, you will find that Genesis 17 is appealed to, understandably, over and over and over again um, as uh, the ground for why 
children are to receive this the, the covenant sign. The promises were to you and your children. And so just as uh, God, has, God has always covenanted with parents and their children and nothing has changed. And so children are included in the promises and the promises were made to Abraham's everlasting covenant. We find the, the new covenant being part of the fulfillment of that. But nevertheless, we have the same thing going on. B.B. Warfield in very, very blunt fashion uh, explains it like this. And I think he was explaining it to, um, to Charles Hodge or Augustus Strong. I can't remember. Uh, but anyways, he says this. The argument in a nutshell is simply this. God established his church in the day of Abraham and put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church and as such entitled to its ordinances. That's it. That's that, I mean, that literally is the argument there, okay, from Genesis 17. Genesis 17, included kids. They're in a verse that said they're not included anymore. They're still included. Assume continuity. That, that is the genealogical principle, okay? But here's where I want to, uh, uh, here's where I want to push back here because you end up with a challenge. I know this is a lot of text, but read this carefully with me. Paedo-Baptists frequently overlook the fact that Abraham's seed, his offspring, um, takes on four distinct references as Scripture develops, each of which must be acknowledged. The first way, the first seed is all of Abraham's offspring, all of them, including Ishmael and all the sons uh, of Keturah, who everyone forgets about. Okay, we've got Abraham and Sarah, and then no one remembers Keturah, sad Keturah. But physical offspring of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. Ishmael was the seed of Abraham. Okay? It's one. Second, Abraham's special physical offspring in the line of promise. So I could have been descended from Abraham, but I am Esau and not Jacob. Esau. Is Esau the seed of Abraham? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. However, he's not part of the special line, which goes through not Esau, but Jacob. Right? This is the special line, and then Jacob is renamed Israel, and that's where you get the 12. That's where you get the nation of Israel. This is the special line, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish people, which is, by, by the way, when you follow the storyline, which is why the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, always were so anti-Israel uh, and Judah. And it's why in the New Testament where you get Herod, an Edomite king, trying to snuff out the promised seed. Okay? That's for a different, that's for a different time. So offspring, all of Abraham's seed, Abraham's special seed. Then in New Testament, we get those who are in Christ, Galatians 3.29. If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Whoa, that, that verse is a game changer right there. If you're in, how, do you, how are you Abraham's seed? Well, I'm, if you're in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. Whoa, that really changes things then. Then we get Galatians 3.16. Christ himself is the seed, if you want to like capital T, capital S, the seed. The promise did not refer to seeds, meaning many, but to seed referring to one, and that is Christ, Galatians 3.16. Okay, so here's the thing. If we are supposed to provide the covenant sign um, to children of believers, 
on the basis of Abraham's genealogical principle here, then we have to ask on what basis exactly are we doing it? Okay? And for any infant, we could ask this. Do we have any reason to believe that they are offspring of the general line, general seed of Abraham? Okay. No. Wait. All right. Uh, uh, for any infant, we could ask the second question. Are they offspring of Jacob in the more uh, narrow sense? Are they, Jew- are they Jewish? They pro- they're, they're part of the promised seed. That's why we're giving them the sign, based off the Abrahamic genealogical principle. Right? No, no, my son is not Jewish. I'm just a Presbyterian who lives in Tennessee. Okay. Well, how do wait then? All right, so, but wait, they are, your, your infant child, they're in Christ. That's why you're, that's the third way. That's that's why you're giving them the sign, right? No, 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 not in Christ. Well, that's how your Abraham seeds. That's not it. Well, are are they Jesus themselves? No, no, they're not Jesus. So then, why are we administering the sign on the basis of the Abrahamic genealogical principle? In what sense? It's inconsistent. What covenantal paedo-baptists end up with is a biblical theology stuck in transition, whereby the physical seed of those who are Abraham's spiritual seed, Christian parents, are said to receive the covenant sign on the basis of continuity with the Abrahamic genealogical principle. Do you see how that's stuck in transition? It's blending two elements. It's like, oh, you went halfway with the, your fulfillment of the biblical theology, but like it's not, you didn't go, you didn't go far enough. Um, Jeffrey Bromley gives perhaps the best example, and I'm so glad that he is bold enough to actually call it this. This is where Baptists throw the flag, penalty flag, and this is exactly what I just, the, the, you're going to see the inconsistency that I just talked about right here. The promise of God in Jesus Christ is still to a thousand generations when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and received so that the children of believers awaken to consciousness with the word of promise in their ears and the mark of promise on their bodies. The call to them as Old Testament Israelites is to enter personally into a covenant membership which does not come to them as a new thing from without, but of which they have, all, they, uh, they have already both the word and the seal by virtue of their Christian descent. Christian descent. That right there is a category that I would suggest does not exist. Christian descent. And yet, that is why, that is the Abrahamic genealogical principle stuck in transition. Okay? I'm not descended from a... So, so, so all right, I think, I've, I think I've said enough about that. I hope you feel the tension. Uh, it actually is lack of continuity. Uh, it's not continuity. It's discontinuity, and it's a biblical theology stuck in transition. Well, let's turn to the other passage that is appealed to ad nauseum to support the idea of uh, children being part of the covenant, and this is in Acts 2, 38 and 39. Turn there with me, please. I realize I am, um, again, moving quickly, but it's with great intentionality. Um, You'll remember that this is uh, Peter's sermon at uh, Pentecost, um, a a heavily abbreviated sermon, by the way, which is a very relevant consideration, I have to say. 
Um, but at the end, of course, uh, he says, in verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they all heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And then you get the two verses. And we've already covered them earlier in the, in the, from a different angle earlier in the series. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's where, the, here's where like the money delivery passage comes. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Okay? The promise is for you and your children and, and all who are far off, all who the Lord God calls to himself. Um, over and over and over again, you'll, just, you'll get two citations that God has always covenanted with parents, with adults and their children. And the citation is Genesis 17 and Acts 2.39. Both covenants are to uh, mean that the children are contained in uh, the covenant. But here's what, I, here's what I want to do. I want to just break this down into three questions very briefly. What exactly first is the content of the promise here? For the promise is for you and your children. Our paedo-baptistic friends are saying, oh, this is the promise of the new covenant. Did anyone see it? Does anyone have the version where the new covenant is, is being... Uh, Expounded here. No, I don't have that version. It says, the, "What is the promise?" Well, the Jews would have heard it as the, you know, the promises uh, of uh, to, to Abraham, and they would have. Uh, that's what they were talking about. Against those contentions, the Baptists contend that it's already been made very clear in Peter's speech what the promise is. Peter says that God will pour out His Spirit in the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, two seventeen. In the last days, here's the promise. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That's what comes happens at Pentecost. Cried, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, and what the crowd was witnessing was the promised Holy Spirit received by Christ and poured out on the multitude. And that's in 233. Let me just read that real quick. This God, this Jesus God raised up into that. Uh, uh, oh, wait, am I reading the wrong? Uh, that's the wrong reference. Thirty-three. There we go. No, yeah. Being therefore, that's right. Yeah, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Christ receives this promised Spirit and pours it out. Joel promises the Spirit. And it's getting poured out. It's the same, the, the same spirit is the content of the promise found in Luke 24, 49, where Christ says that he is sending the promise uh, of the Father upon them that will clothe them with power. Reference to the Holy Spirit. Luke, Acts, same author. Acts 1, 5. Jesus tells them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Spirit. It's all right here. What is the content of the promise? The promise, the content of the promise is that is the forgiveness of sins, but particularly the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's what you see in 238, the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive. There's something that you are going to receive, a promise that you're going to receive, and that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
answer one. That's the content of the promise. Um, who exactly are the recipients of the promise in verse 39? Notice very carefully. You, your children, all who are far off, and then, very importantly, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That last clause clarifies who receives the Holy Spirit. All of you who God calls to himself, all of your children who God calls to himself, all those who are far off that God will call to himself, which in that, this context would be like we understood it, the Gentiles at this point. Okay? No one understands this passage to mean that everyone's child automatically receives the Holy Spirit or is automatically a Christian. That's not what our Presbyterian brothers and sisters are saying. But the clarifying phrase makes it clear that it's not all by default, but it's those within each category that God calls to himself. That Greek phrase translated as many as the Lord calls, hosan on, limits the recipients to the promise of those whom God calls specifically. Uh, a similar usage occurs in Mark 6.56, where Jesus is depicted as healing sick people everywhere, yet only as many as touched his garment received the healing. Meaning not every single person was healed. As many people within the area where he was doing healing touched his garment was healed. So similarly, it's not that every person that day uh, or in Jerusalem was saved. It's not that every child had forgiveness of sins. And it certainly is not the whole world, everyone who is far off, and the Gentiles receive these things. It is all those whom God calls out of those categories. Those are the recipients of the promise. And interestingly, we can look at the final question, who exactly was baptized? This one always goes overlooked here. Which one? This one always goes overlooked. Look at verse 241. So those who received his word were baptized. Who received, who heard and received Peter's word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Where's the, where are all the children that were baptized? Every, the people who were baptized who are one who received the word of Peter. That's exactly what we would expect if people were repenting and believing to receive the forgiveness of sins and the promise, Holy Spirit. Um, I want to any. I'm going to have one concluding section here. Any questions about Acts two thirty eight, Acts two thirty nine? Before I go on to that, I know I haven't paused and asked for questions. Any questions about that? Okay. So content of the promise. Holy Spirit, recipients of the promise, whoever the Lord God calls to you, your children, and Gentiles, and who was actually, as a matter of fact, baptized, it was the ones who received the word, which is exactly what we would expect. They're the ones who repented, who the ones who were cut to the heart. Okay? I'm going to conclude by answering a question that comes up everywhere you turn in this debate, Joel Beakey and Ray Lanning pose this question that they ambitiously suggest in their anthology, which is considered the gold standard in, in defending covenantal infant baptism, uh, a question that no Baptist can answer. Whew. Question no Baptist. You can imagine that when I read that sentence, I was like, oh, oh, oh baby. <laughs> what is it? And here's what it is. How could a converted Jew regard the new covenant as a better covenant if now his children were to be excluded from God's dealings? 
with his people no longer receiving a sign of God's covenant promise. Beaky and Lanning are not alone here. Um, in fact, for some people, this is just kind of like the mic dropping into this conversation. Like for some people, just think just asking the question, it's like, argument over. That's it. We can all go home. Obviously, children are included. In fact, Francis Schaeffer, listen to what Schaeffer writes regarding Acts 2, 38, 39. He said, if Peter did not mean what the Jews understood him to mean in an Old Testament context, promise that God establishes his covenant, not just with believers, but with our children also, then there would have been a riot on that day. That's what he says. David Bostwick similarly writes concerning the same passage. Observe, Peter does not say the promise was to you and your children, but it is still. Otherwise, they might have naturally be supposed to object that their children were like to be in a worse condition under the gospel than they were under the law. Such examples could be multiplied over and over and over, okay? But three, three are enough. What are covenantal Baptists to say? Are they, in fact, rendered speechless? Is this the end? Should we all go to the Nashville Presbytery and ask forgiveness for our poor theology? I don't think so. Um, and before responding, let me point out a glaring inconsistency with the just kind of the dialectical move from our Presbyterian friends here. Unlike dispensationalists, covenantal paedo-baptists, reformed paedo-baptists, whatever, um, they, they re emphatically reject the idea that the new covenant includes the promise of the land of Canaan and the city of Jerusalem uh, as part of the new covenant. Okay, they emphatically reject it. Our dispensationalist friends, they hold on to that tightly, which, by the way, is a very interesting tension. Watching Presbyterians and dispensationalists both refer back to the Abrahamic promises one of them keeps the physical land promise and spiritualizes the genealogical principle. The Presbyterians keep the genealogical principle and spiritualize the land promise. It's the Reformed Baptist who finds fulfillment in both of those in different ways. Uh, it's a different, but it, it's very interesting watching dispensationalists and Presbyterians both appeal to the same text, but just pick and choose which parts continue and which parts don't. But nevertheless, our Presbyterian friends who are asking me these questions. They do not believe that the land was promised as a part of the new covenant. But anyone even remotely familiar with the Old Testament knows how absolutely critical the land was to the people of Israel. So much so, it was so much a part of their identity that their punishment could be described as removal from it, getting kicked out of it, and, 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 and restoration returned to it. So the, the question the covenantal Baptist first has to answer themselves, if they are going to ask me that question is this, where is the outcry here? Where is the outcry that the new covenant doesn't contain the land? That's just as central of a principle to the, it would have been just as central as a principle to a Jew as anything about our children being included. Where is Schaefer's riot on, on that account? Nowhere in all of the New Testament do we see um, that such an outcry. Can we safely, can I ask my Presbyterian friend, can we safely assume then that the new covenant promises the land of Canaan and the city of Jerusalem uh, 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 to believers or to Jews? And they would say, no. Then you might say, okay, well then maybe you can't, maybe you need to apply the same principle to the question you're asking me. However, however, rhetorical inconsistency aside, I do have an answer 
And I think there's actually much more difficult questions to answer than this one. Uh, I'm at 44, I've got one minute left. I'm going to just go a couple minutes over. I'm going to read a, uh, a fictitious dialogue that I wrote between Simeon, who is a Jew who just heard Peter's sermon at Pentecost. He approaches Peter afterwards, after, like I said, an abbreviated, the Acts give us an abbreviated version of something that was probably a couple hours long. So there was a lot more that got explained than is right here. Very critical. Maybe he said something about something like that. We don't know. But here is what we hear. Simeon approaches Peter, and then uh, it'll be pretty obvious when I go back and forth. So I understand that we now have the full forgiveness of sins and a perfect high priest, but how can a covenant in which my children are excluded be a better covenant than what has come before? Excluded? Your children aren't excluded. The promise of forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit is for, is for them as well. Well, I mean, but they aren't included by default just because they're my children. That is true, but that's not because there's been a downgrade. It's because there's been an upgrade. How so, Peter? Remember how you told me that your grandfather from generations back was taken into exile and he was treated brutally even though he was a faithful Israelite and delighted in the law of Yahweh. Yes, that's right, I did say that. Well, why was that? Because our people as a whole were unfaithful and our nation had to suffer the covenant curses as a result. And Peter asks, well, how did unfaithful people get into the covenant to bring such tragedy upon your grandfather?" Well, some of those born into the covenant ended up being faithful to Yahweh, but many others did not. So what you're saying is that because our children have been included in the covenant by default, apart from their faithfulness, we've been in a situation where the faithful among us have to suffer curses for the sins of other people. Yes, that, that is true. What if I told you that nothing about the new covenant changes how your children are positioned to be faithful towards Yahweh, that they are just as strategically positioned to see salvation as you raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as they have always been? Well, I mean, that would be, that would be a good start. Let me ask you a silly question. Did your mother and grandmother receive the sign of our covenant? Obviously not. Okay, what if I told you that in this new covenant, because the promised seed has come, men and women have the privilege of receiving the covenant sign? That seems different, but, but certainly compelling. What if I told you that because of God's promises to our father Abraham, God will always be faithful to our people as a nation and will always preserve for himself a faithful remnant of Jews, just like in the time of Elijah and just like was promised by the prophets? It would make me feel like God's promises are still true. Indeed, and what if I told you that membership in this new covenant not only guaranteed that you would not suffer consequences for the sins of others, but that everyone within it would fear Yahweh and be faithful, just like your grandfather? If everyone in the covenant were like my grandfather, yes. That sounds like it would be a much better covenant. Yes, indeed it would, and now mercifully it has come upon us. Let's pray. God, we're thankful to again explore these things. We pray that you would uh, cause us to ponder them with wonder and thankfulness. We pray that as we look at our children, we hold out the gospel to them with our lives and our words. 
And yet we are thankful for a new household with a new head. We're thankful for the promise of the Spirit and forgiveness of sins. Please bless our time and our next hour. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.